Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 524, Whom Shall I Fear? How afraid should we be of Satan, or should we be afraid of God? And why did the Prince of Peace say that he didn't come to bring peace? This week, we're tackling some of the theologically challenging passages in Matthew chapter 10. Hello, it's good to be with you again today on this lengthy journey we're taking together into uh, Matthew's gospel. In fact, I think we're on week 23. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time on the first half of chapter 10, which is uh, the second of five discourses uh, that Matthew has where Jesus is is teaching in a, in a group of teaching, and this is called the, uh, the mission discourse. Um, in the first half of chapter 10, we saw Jesus was giving instructions to the 12 on how to do missions really effectively. He, he sent them out with a clear target group. Uh, he told them what to do when they got there, how to establish a strong base, even what to do when they faced inevitable rejection. Mission is central to ministry. It's about making following Jesus practical. And I really tried to stress that in the first half of this chapter. Um, today, we're going to, to see how Jesus moves from um, uh, in, instructions that are got a lot of encouragement to them into now a much more sobering aspect of his commission. And we need both halves of chapter 10 to... to to learn how to be really effective in missions. So let's carry on, starting at verse 16. See, I am sending you out like sheep into the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. We have a picture here with with four metaphors of of animals. Um, The challenge... Uh, of discipleship is to give up the world's way of self-defense and fighting back. And, and a sheep, we all know, is not exactly empowered with a lot of self-defense mechanisms. Um, his mission to them is going out as defenseless sheep into the midst of dangerous wolves. This isn't a mistake. This is the way God works, intentional vulnerability. We've talked about kenosis, the self-emptying. We're we're back to that third way we looked at uh, in the the section on uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. Mission, Jesus is telling them, is going to mean suffering. It's going to mean criticism. It's going to mean slander and attack. Folks, you and I are called to a cross-shaped life. And the great paradox is that it is, this is the way, the, the emptying, the being vulnerable, the, this cruciform or cross-shaped life is the way of real, authentic victory. This is the mysterious way that the kingdom works. Sometimes it's invisible, but that is how it works. You know, throughout history, there's always been times when the church, who are sheep, they decide they've had enough and they're going to approach the world on its own terms, the, 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 the terms of wolves. 
Whenever this happens, uh, we move away from the power of the cross because there's great power in this taking a place of blessed are the meek, a humility, self-emptying. Chrysostom, one of the great church fathers, was speaking to the church at his time, warning them of this very thing. He said this, Let them be ashamed who do the contrary, who set like wolves upon our enemies, for so long as we are sheep, we conquer. But if we become wolves, we are worsted. For the help of our shepherd departs from us, for he feeds not wolves, but sheep. This is a very real issue in the church right now. It's especially uh, been strong in, I'd say, the last couple of years. And, and, And there's this great sense of standing up for our rights and, and, uh, kind of being in defiance. But that's not the way of the cross. So Christostom makes it clear. He says, when we decide we've had enough and we're not going to be as, as sheep, we lose the grace of God. We, we step away from the power of the cross. I love history. And in the 6th century, uh, 16th century in France, there was a growing movement of Protestants called Huguenots. And uh, the, the established church uh, in France at that time was, by all accounts, was very, very corrupt. And it was, it was pretty non-spiritual. In fact, they, they uh, persecuted and even imprisoned those who talked about just seeking the Lord in contemplation. That's how far off they got. Well, this movement rises up. It actually it was a Protestant movement. They were called the Huguenots, and it was flourishing because it was bringing living water to a parched country. And uh, it grew and grew, and you know, it almost prevailed. Um, but, but when they were repeatedly attacked, they decided finally, well, we need to just defend ourselves. We need to fight back. And when that happened, it led to what is called the War of Religions. There was a, there was in one day, um, the St. Bartholomew Massacre, in one day, 20,000 people killed. The Huguenots lost. The, the whole movement just went away. And that's an example that God does not bless us when we fight back. You know, here's a quote, actually, from the ambassador, uh, from Venice at the time. He's watching what's happening. And he says this, But for this religious war, France would now be Huguenot because the people were rapidly changing their faith and Protestant ministers were much respected. But when they passed from words to weapons, the people began to say, What kind of religion is this? Truthfully, we have those who are not following Christ looking at the aggressiveness, uh, the, the, the political and social aggressiveness that is rising up where we are not being sheep but wolves, and they're asking the very same question that was asked all those years ago, what kind of religion is this? Let's go on. He says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, most snakes just instinctively, when there's trouble, they get out of the way. 
Um, and it's interesting because snakes were thought to be wise. Um, but Jesus was saying, stay vulnerable. Yes, but that doesn't mean being unwise, being foolish. Jesus was not asking the 12 to go on unintelligent mission uh, when he sends them out as sheep. We should be smart enough, for one thing, to listen to the shepherd's voice. How Jesus completes this four-animal picture with gentleness of a dove. And again and again, this takes us back to the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the gentle. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the meek. He says, learn from me, for I am meek and lowly. So he says, be like a dove. Be peaceful. Be harmless. Uh, He says, harmless as a dove. Literally, that means without guile. Be nonviolent. Again, John Chrysostom said this, Jesus knows that fierceness is not quenched by fierceness, but by gentleness. Let's move on. Verse 17 and 18. Beware of them, for they will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. Beware of them. They're going to hand you over. Handing over is what the wolves do. It is the Jews that hand them over to the synagogue councils. What is happening is Jesus is predicting. He's telling this is going to happen. And it did happen after his death and resurrection and ascension. There was was a, a handing over to these councils. He was predicting persecution Uh, that would come from the Jews to his followers. He's telling of a time before the separation of the church and the synagogue that would take place. Um, His his reference to floggings uh, is that synagogues did do that. They were allowed what they considered a heretic to, to, to flog them. But, you know, it's interesting, they stayed part of that for a long time. This, his words remind us that, that the separation between the, the, the Jewish Christians from broader Jewish worship was a very slow separation. And then he goes on to say this opposition is going to then go beyond the Jewish world. Imagine, for them it would be frightening to be brought before the synagogue council that could get flogged, but it would be terrifying uh, to be brought before a high Roman official who could, like that, could determine that they would be executed. Disciples would be harassed, they would be persecuted, but it wasn't for who they were, it was for who Jesus is. And I think we need to remember that in our own lives, as they were faithful to Jesus. Let's go on. Verse 19 and 20, when they hand you over, do not worry about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you at that time. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. He says, don't worry. The word he uses there is the very same one that we talked about in chapter 6, when he said, don't worry about your material needs, like food and clothing. The Father can be trusted when we, we need the right words, too. You know, 
it's interesting. I want to go back to this verse. Uh, For it's not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. There's a hint here uh, from Matthew uh, of a triune God, a Trinitarian way of thinking about God, that the Father gives the Spirit to empower the disciples to witness to the Son. Let's look at verses 21 and 22. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus is telling them that that following him to both proclaim and demonstrate the gospel will be costly. They will be persecuted. So first, the Jewish leaders, then secular authorities, now their own families. The the pain of betrayal, uh, especially from a family member. You know, just just going to uh, Bulgaria and... As a, a former uh, Soviet satellite nation, and I've been to many of them, there are still the scars, uh, 30, more than 30 years later, the scars of, even among the believers, of mistrust, of of keeping their hearts somewhat closed, of not sharing ministry. It's because they lived firsthand and profoundly with betrayal where it was sadly commonplace for family members to betray uh, other family members to the communist authorities. So betrayal really can scar us. Um, It's funny. This is, of course, part of his whole mission discourse. And we would have expected more of a of a motivational almost a pep talk as he sends them out on their first field trip so why is jesus stressing bad news why is there so little prediction of success and fruitfulness of lives transformed why is he doing this well mission work is of a great even ultimate final significance but it comes at great personal cost As you know, I work very closely with wonderful leaders around the developing world. Um, uh, I work with our partner in India, where uh, he has had pastors who work under him and with him, he's had them killed. He's had uh, many times um, gatherings of, of the church broken up by persecutors, where where the furniture was smashed, the people were beaten. And then the police would come and they would charge the Christians with disturbing the peace. Um, We've got a partner, Mike Brown, in Kenya, and he's, he's had bombs thrown into his church. He had a bomb thrown into his church school bus and killing eight. He had he had 14 of his of his uh, kids that he'd rescued off the street and raised and were now going to college and they were mowed down. So this is not 
theoretical. This is absolutely real right now. But you know, it's always been dangerous to be a missionary. Always. I was thinking about the, the missionaries, uh, who came primarily from, uh, England and from America to Africa in the, in the last half of, of the, of the 19th century. Did you know 75% of them knew they would be dead in the first six months from disease? And still they went and they went and they went because of the, the purpose and the passion of the mission of the gospel. Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I must say that the more persecution that comes to the church, uh, the faster it grows. This is We're right in the middle of this right now in India. It's also important for us to see in Jesus' words that significance and success are not synonymous. Uh, th- our significance happens as we move uh, in the direction, again, of the, of the cross, uh, a cruciform life. But, but the, the significance is eternal, even when we can't see immediate success. The opposition that the disciples are going to face calls for the sacrifice of life itself. A sacrifice, by the way, that they willingly made. History tells us that 11 of the 12 were martyred. Well, now we get to a really interesting section. I'm going to take several minutes on this. Uh, Verse 23, And when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I tell you, you will have not gone through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This is famously one of the most difficult verses in all of the New Testament. So Jesus sees division and persecution happening quickly. And he says, but... Well, let's read it exactly. He says, uh, You will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Most readers think that Jesus is referring to what's called the parousia, which is the second coming. But I I think this is very unlikely. What he's saying to them about that and the second coming, it's just too far removed from about A.D. 30 where the, tw- the 12 are, are living right now. It's pretty generally agreed among scholars that, that Jesus uh, based the wording of what he said on a famous passage in Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14. Let me read it to you. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming from the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near to him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. He sees the Son of Man coming before the throne. There is nothing in this imagery at all that suggests that he comes Uh, from earth to heaven, but rather he uh, um, he comes to earth from heaven. I said it backwards, that he's not coming to earth from heaven, but rather he comes to, he comes, uh, from 
Uh, sorry, I'm saying it backwards. He comes from the earth to heaven. I've just muddled that. There's nothing in the imagery that says he's coming from heaven down to earth. In fact, it says he's coming up to heaven, to the Ancient of Days, to the Father. I do not believe that Matthew is speaking of an end times, an eschatological event, but he's speaking of an enthroning that's going to happen. And in this enthroning is a vindication of the Son of Man after his earthly rejection, after his suffering unto death. God is going to turn the tables on those who thought they had triumphed when Jesus was crucified. The disciples are going to face persecution, but eventually will come a time when God's judgment will come on all those who opposed the gospel, who opposed what the disciples had been assigned to do. The disciples will be rescued when the Son of Man has come to the Father. Therefore, this verse 23 is a promise. He's saying, continue with the mission, because God will vindicate you quickly. That The coming of the Son of Man is not describing a, a specific historical event. Uh, again, I don't think it's describing the second coming, the parousia. But the, he's using language to depict his vindication and his sovereign authority. So I want to put three questions out there, and we'll try to answer them. Is this verse speaking of a mission to Israel that will continue throughout history? Is that what he's saying? You're going to keep going and going and going, uh, and it'll continue, and it'll be to Israel throughout history. Or um, is he talking about an earlier ending within history, like the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in AD 70? Um, but... If so, then after this event, it wouldn't even be appropriate for the disciples to keep going to the towns of Israel. And thirdly, is Jesus speaking of a nearer point in time that would be more relevant uh, to the mission of the Twelve? It's interesting to me that immediately after Jesus' uh, claim that he has all authority in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth given unto me, he immediately says, now go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, people groups, not just Israel. So, is the coming of the Son of Man an end to the, the mission that is specific to Israel? Let me give you, there are actually six historic interpretations of this challenging verse. Number one. It was actually Albert Schweitzer who said Jesus was mistaken about the timing of his return, uh, his second coming. Number two, it is about the coming of the Son of Man in triumph after the resurrection. Number three, it is about the Son of Man coming in judgment against the Jews in A.D. 70. Number four, it is a call to keep evangelizing in a resistant Israel. He's just saying, keep going, keep going. There is a finish line. Number five, Jesus is not referring to any specific event, but to his eventual vindication. And number six is interesting. This is a, 
prophetic, what's called a foreshortening, events being brought in tightly together. Um, Jesus means both his resurrection and the second coming. It's like two mountain ranges that you can't see the gap between them. So I put that out before you, give you some things to think about. And now we move right into the next section, Whom do we fear? Verse 25 to 28. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher, for the slave that he become like his master. If they had called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more those in his household? Therefore, do not be afraid of them. Nothing is concealed that will not be revealed, nor secret that will not be known. What I say to you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. I really want to focus on that last one. This Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Truthfully, uh, many, many, many uh, uh, evangelical commentators think that uh, the one we should fear is God. In fact, even capitalize one in in one of the translations. But I I don't think this is true, and I'm going to take a little time because it's so key to our whole understanding of who our Heavenly Father is. So I'm going to quote quite a bit in the next few minutes from N.T. Wright. Many of you would know him, a wonderful theologian. So rather than me trying to paraphrase, I'm going to give it to you straight from N.T. Wright. Some have seen the one who can cast into Gehenna uh, as Yahweh, but this is unrealistic. Jesus did not, to be sure, perceive Israel's God as a kindly liberal godfather who would never hurt a fly, let alone send anyone to Gehenna. But again and again, not least in the very next verse of this paragraph, Israel's God is portrayed as the creator and the sustainer, one who can be lovingly trusted in all circumstances, not one who waits with a large stick to beat anyone who steps out of line. Rather, here we have a redefinition of the battle in terms of the identification of the real enemy. The one who can kill the body is the imagined enemy, Rome. Who then is the real enemy? Surely not Israel's own God. The real enemy is the accuser, the Satan. Now let's look at the context of this verse. Twice before the verse, he says, don't be afraid. And then in this verse, he says, be afraid. And then right after, he says again, so do not be afraid. This could give us whiplash unless we understand what's going on. Let me give you another quote from N.T. Wright. 
the progression of commands could be seen as fairly awkward or confusing if Jesus is referring to God. Don't fear murder from the Roman leaders. Do fear God who can murder you more completely. Don't be afraid because God loves you and will take care of you. Which is it? Should the disciples be afraid of God because he can destroy them in hell, or should they not be afraid because he intimately loves and cares for them? So what's going on here? Jesus is telling the twelve, don't fear your accusers. Um, if, if they're, he says, if they're accusing me of demonic activity, um, and demonic empowering, then don't be surprised. Expect it if they say the same about you. He tells them not to fear their enemies. The the first century Palestine, the Jews lived with constant fear, constant threat from natural enemies. They had Rome and they had Herod. Both were brutal. Uh, Herod was unpredictable in his cruelty, but Jesus said, don't fear them. All they can do is kill the body. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So who is the one? I agree with Wright. It is Satan. It isn't the natural powers of Rome and Herod that can kill the soul. And in fact, they have no interest. They're not even thinking supernaturally. But they are simply natural manifestations of the powers that be that are under the control of Satan, that seek to both control and destroy. They are constantly battling for the soul, both of individuals and society. The powers that be are the, are the demonic forces And they're not, as I've taught before, they're not out there somewhere. They have infiltrated our structures, our political structures, our economic structures, uh, on and on and on. And how did they get there? And their purpose is to bring destruction. How did they get there? Well, very briefly, God creates every institution, every group with with his creative ultimate purpose. Um, Theologians call this vocation. And when a group or a company, I think even a family group, when they move from God's great purpose to their own self-purpose, when they move into selfishness, that opens the door to idolatry. They start to put their own success or their own future ahead of worshiping God. It's very easy to do. But idolatry always opens the doors to the demonic. And when the demonic comes in, then the powers that be, um, these spiritual principalities and powers that Paul talks about, have now begun to influence 
I think this is a big part of what Jesus is talking about. He, he's contrasting fearing Satan with trusting a father who is always for us and who's always taking care of us. That, that This tells us never confuse the work of God with the work of the enemy. In healing ministry, you know, I've heard hundreds of times, well, God is using this sickness uh, to teach me something or to chastise me. No, God is always for you. He's always for me. It is the enemy who brings these things, not God. So, right, uh, N.T. Wright says this, it is important to be clear at this point Some people think that when Jesus urges us to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, he's referring to God himself. But the point here is the opposite. Get this, folks. God is the one we do not have to fear. Indeed, he is the one we can trust with our lives, our souls, our bodies, everything. The second point in this passage is another important one. He says, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. Um, Many of your Bibles will say hell. Hell was used by the King James uh, translators in the early 1600s. It's an old Anglo-Saxon word, helle, and it does not appear in the original language anywhere. Um, It's Gehenna. And, and so I think it's really important that we have a, a right understanding of it. It was likely uh, a garbage dump on the south side of Jerusalem. During the Roman occupation, they would throw bodies over the wall down into this deep valley. Um, it was a place where there was constant burning. It was, it was a garbage dump. It was, it was a type of graveyard. David Bentley Hart said this, the language of uh, Gehenna in the Synoptic Gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, really referred to the historical wrath and judgment that many could see descending on Israel in Jesus' own time, culminating in the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. Jesus used metaphor all the time, didn't he? All the time. Uh, a, a fishing net, um, an oven, uh, a threshing floor. We don't take those literally. We understand he's speaking metaphorically. So why do we so quickly embrace Gehenna literally? At the heart of it, Gehenna is about judgment, yes. But the primary picture is about the impact of our sin on ourselves and on others right now. It's, it's that influence, it's that demonic influence right now. So for Jesus, Gehenna referred to the consequences of rebellion. It's a metaphor for spiritual lostness, and it's a metaphor for alienation from God. I've shared with you before, Matthew presents us with a a spiritual warfare in which Christ is ultimately victorious with that kind of paradigm. Just as the kingdom is within us and among us, Jesus is reminding us, so is the destructive reality of Gehenna. 
John 10.10, the thief does come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have abundant life. Especially since the Reformation, the church has pushed Gehenna to mean final judgment and end and the end times, uh, an eternal hell. We've failed to see Jesus' warnings against the destructiveness of our own rebellion and our own idolatry, both personal and national, right now. He is always warning us right now. God is not threatening to punish us uh, with a future fiery torture. Instead, he offers relief from the oppression of the enemy that we are under right now. Let's move on. Verse 29. He comes right out of this and he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a small coin, yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's knowledge? Even all the hairs of your head are counted, so do not be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. To see God as the one to fear is totally inconsistent with these verses that immediately follow the warning. You're of infinite value, so don't be afraid. No matter what happens, like the sparrows, we will never be abandoned or unaccompanied by the Father. Now let's move to the next section, the cross and true peace. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. What is going on? Jesus had said in the Beatitudes, Blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called the sons and daughters of God. Now he says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Why is this? It's because Jesus knows the gospel separates light and darkness. He knows that trouble is central to the mission of taking the gospel out. What John Lewis called good trouble. He says you're going to get into good trouble, guaranteed. You know, throughout all of history, the consequences of declaring this wonderful gospel, this beautiful gospel of faith and love, has meant persecution and opposition. I, uh, I have a young friend who, who pastors in, in a different area of India, and, and one day he called me, and then he showed me some pictures. They went into a village that had not to, to preach the gospel, and they were physically driven out with stones. They were in good trouble. I took a team to a, a village, uh, a Hindu village in Nepal, and we were way up in the mountains, and we camped out there. And... And our team, they, they set up witch doctors around us on the hills, and, and they were chanting and chanting and incantations and all this stuff against us hour after hour. By the way, one of those witch doctors got healed and came to Christ. There's, there, it's good trouble. We didn't go, oh, no, we're in trouble. We said, ah, the kingdom is advancing. It's forcefully advancing. Jesus wasn't a triumphalist. He was a realist. He knows that his mission is a minority movement going into a cultural majority. 
And you bring those together and inevitably what you get is friction. And just like in our, uh, in our day, the early church dealt with a culture that not only ridiculed and denigrated them, but it also went after them because of intolerance. How can you say that Jesus is the way to the Father? That he's the way, the truth, intolerance. It's not a current thing. It's very strong right now. Uh, this whole issue of tolerance and, and viewing the gospel as intolerant, when ironically it is the most tolerant, it is the most embracing, it is the most welcoming message in history. But just so you know, we don't have uh, a handle on that. Uh, Apollinaris said this, one of the church fathers. Now, since the unbelievers think that peacemaking is their proper duty, they say to us, do not believe that it is best under all circumstances to be saved, for you owe it as a duty to be at peace with us. The way of true peace is not to avoid conflict. Our words are to be seasoned with grace, Colossians 3, but they are to be truthful. Christostom said this, What sort of peace is it that Jesus asks them to pronounce? This, more than anything else, is peace. When the disease is removed, this is peace. When the cancer is cut away, this is peace. Only with such radical surgery is it possible for heaven to be reunited with earth. Let's go down to verse 35. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is quoting Micah 7, verse 6. And um, as we said, the first persecution came from the Jews and the secular authorities. And now he's saying, it's even going to come from your own family members. He says, if you decide to follow Jesus... It's going to bring division in families. It, the message is from the Prince of Peace. It's a beautiful message, but it's going to bring division. You know, I think uh, 44 years ago, I, uh, I'd come to Christ 45 years ago, and Christina did not know the Lord. We didn't come from a strong church background or anything. And she got more and more and more upset. And uh, after about eight months, she said to me, um, she said to me, I, I can't have you, you, you got to choose, love God or love me, you can't have us both. I'll never forget that. And, uh, and just a, a couple of days later, I actually went away on my first ever kind of retreat, a weekend young adult retreat. And I remember walking through the fields and I was so afraid because I loved her. But I, I, I was like Peter when Jesus said, are you, are you going to leave too? He says, where else could we go? We're hooked. You alone have the words of eternal life. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was really afraid. Um, but you know, Jesus spoke to me. One of the first times I remember 
him speaking in my spirit clearly and and he told me not to be afraid. He said, my will is going to be good and perfect and acceptable. But what's he doing here? He's warning the 12 and he's warning us what will happen so that we'll be encouraged when things start to go badly. For most of us, discipleship is a journey where Jesus progressively takes over more and more of our lives. Uh, following him uh, increasingly will affect our key relationships, work, friendships, family. So we will inevitably encounter that friction I was talking about a few minutes ago. Even if we dislike it, even if we're uncomfortable with it, this very tension can be a sign of our growing commitment as disciples to Jesus. Eusebius, another terrific church father, he put it like this. Certainly the intention of God, who sent his Son, was such that men would be saved. When the Son was sent, his obedience had as its aim that there would be peace in heaven and on earth. Why then was there no peace? Because in their infirmity many were not able to receive the splendor of true light. In truth, the proclamation of peace causes division. When a son believes and a father does not, discord is inevitable. Though the preaching of peace causes division, what a good division it is, for in peace we are saved. Let's go back to the example of my own marriage, Christina and I. I came home. It got way worse. It just got scary. But then it brought her to a place of this discord and this discomfort, and she was in tears for a couple of weeks. It was scary for me. But then it brought her to a place where I remember I was with her when she was angry, 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 but she wanted to know the truth. And suddenly it's like the Holy Spirit just came upon her. And, and she went from anger to this radiance, and I'm not exaggerating. And she began to weep and weep, and she encountered Christ. The discord, while I hate discord, most healthy people do, God uses it, and he used it with us to bring her to a point of decision. And now, of course, for all these years, it's been true peace. Let's go on. Verse 38. Whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. Those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Take up your cross has become an idiom like, uh, oh, he's a good Samaritan. So it's lost most of its impact. Jesus isn't, when he says take up your cross, he's not talking about a difficult co-worker or your, your in-laws or you're having trouble sleeping. The disciples were listening to this in the first century and they would have been shocked. The cross was an implement of terror. It was before them all the time. Romans did sometimes mass crucifixions. It was a punishment. Uh, it was the execution method for all non-Roman citizens. And it was meant to terrorize, and it did. To have a family member crucified was the ultimate shame. And crucifixion itself drew universal scorn and mockery. Just think of Jesus on the cross. So Jesus, when he says 
that we're to take up our cross, I think he's talking at two levels. The first is a literal loss of life. And uh, this was going to be fulfilled for all of them except John. But the second is a loss of the life we prefer, a loss of our preferences and our priorities. There's been two kind of historic interpretations of take up your cross. One is a passive interpretation, meaning accept the cross that is given to you by your circumstances. The second interpretation is the intentional interpretation. It it means uh, a way of life, i.e., it's a decision. It's a political decision to be a pacifist. It's a decision to get involved in social-based activities based on your faith, uh, social issues based on your faith. It's a decision to live among and as the poor, these kinds of things. Thus, cross-bearing is an active lifestyle that is chosen in obedience to Jesus. So what do we do to make this practical for us? To take steps of obedience according to what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. To care for the poor. To to live nonviolently. To turn the other cheek. To live with simplicity. Following Jesus is not trying to tough it out uh, in obedience. Following him is to be empowered by his spirit. It's a supernatural grace. Jesus is inviting us into the great privilege of mission and disciple-making. We need to ask ourselves, is following Jesus a privilege or a burden? You know, long ago, long ago, I was convinced that following Jesus was the greatest adventure. And it is more, um, it is worth more than the loss of, of other things that mattered to me most. It meant a different career for me. It meant a different of, a different, uh, instead of being esteemed by, by relatives and, and formerly close friends, I was, I was not esteemed. We'll leave it at that. So it's a decision. He's calling them to a decision. And he goes on to say, those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is the single most uh, often repeated saying of Jesus in all of the Gospels. Now, just a few verses earlier, verse 21, he predicted that family members would betray disciples unto death. He's told them to take up their cross it seems very likely to me that that there is uh, losing their life for my sake can be taken quite literally. I think they would have taken it very literally. And it can still be taken very literally for, for some of the heroic men and women I work with in the developing world. But to say that doesn't allow us to ignore its implication and application for our lives. We we can't ignore the principle of suffering and of deprivation in our lives for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. When When he says, for my sake, he's pointing directly to the issue of priorities. And when he says, to find their life, those who want to find their life, he's talking about uh, life on our own terms, to, to make it secure, 
to and and security is everything right now. It's to be caught up in the spirit of the age that I gotta have enough money and I gotta make sure I got enough money twenty years from now. And I've got to feel good about myself by having whatever Madison Avenue throws at me and says, this will make you feel good. It's to be caught up in the spirit of the age. It's to, it's to move beyond uh, survival and the basic needs of life. Clearly, Jesus is saying that life is not to be lived like that. Don't keep following that. That isn't the life you're to find. Lose your life for the real life that you get in me. By the way, I, I just want to just say, I want to encourage us all, be really aware of preaching that, that focuses on our success, on our comfort, on our making it. Look for where being a disciple by the standard of Jesus is taught. Jesus also speaking about eternal life here. You know, you're going to find your eternal life, and he's contrasting it with this life. So how do I, how do I shift, how do I get free from, from trying to save my life to finding my life in him, losing that life and finding it in him? I think a, a key to giving up this life is to focus, to meditate on our eternal life with Christ. We need to give more time to thinking about eternity with Christ. And I think it progressively frees us from attachment. Let's just finish this, the power of welcome. Verse 40, the one who welcomes you welcomes me. The one who welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. Anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. Anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is a disciple, truly I tell you, he will never lose his reward. So after stressing the the coming persecution and rejection that the twelve are going to face, he now finishes with encouragement. He focuses on those who indeed will receive what they're preaching. They will receive the good news. He promises rewards to those who welcome them in, to those who are hospitable. We talked uh, first half of this chapter about a house of peace. There's rewards. And he says, you, you who invite them in, you're as valuable as the workers themselves. So those who welcome are indispensable to the mission. It is so vital. Welcome means conscious hospitality. It is very intentional. It means financial support. It means physical assistance. It means emotional encouragement. These words teach us about the vital role of hospitality, both to give it and to receive it. Hospitality has always been the life of the church. So, today we saw the seriousness of the second half of the mission discourse. And uh, it stresses and reminds us of the ultimate importance of the mission. This is why Jesus came, and this is why he sends us. God bless you. Just uh, if you'll hang around for a minute, we're going to get set, and uh, Tim and I will have a discussion. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. 
We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comment section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. All right. Well, thus concludes Matthew chapter 10. Uh, a little deeper theologically on the second half than yeah. the first half, I noticed. Yep. Um, some pretty serious issues to deal with, actually. I'm glad you you tackled those things head on because there's I think there's a lot of room for misinterpretation yes in there is several of those passages yeah yep. so I think you brought some good clarity today um, hey just before we jump into a couple questions that I have I wanted to mention we've got a, a lot of new listeners to the podcast uh, who maybe aren't aware that you have written several books um, and uh, as we were especially a couple weeks ago actually as we were talking about uh, the mission and and Jesus sending them out uh, I realized you have actually written extensively on that very topic in terms of what, how Jesus made disciples uh, and then how the early church made disciples. So I thought I'd just make our listeners aware, if you have not yet purchased a copy of The First Church Restored, uh, I would highly recommend it. Uh, it is available at impactnations.com slash shop, I think he says with... <laughs> great confidence. Isaiah's going to put up a lower third there that'll have that for you, but um, you can purchase this or uh, any of the other three books that uh, you've written as well. Did you have anything you wanted to say just on, on the First Church Restored and how that might help people in terms of mission and making disciples? Um, only to say that um, I wrote it not only with historical research, mm -hmm. but then projected that into our 21st century world. And I think something like 10 of 14 chapters finish with an explicit putting it into practice or making it practical, however I put that. And here's how you can do it in your life or if you're in some kind of a small group, how you yep. guys can apply it. Awesome. Uh, all right. A question. Uh, you, you actually just told me, just as we were sitting down here before uh, we turned the microphones back on, that uh, you said like 80% of historians, theologians have interpreted that verse, uh, be afraid of God, as opposed to be afraid of Satan. Uh, is that? Did I understand that correctly? Sort of. Okay. Um, of um, post-Reformation. Post, yeah. Gotcha. Uh, and, that's, and that's where thinking really started to, to shift. Yeah, not that more. there wasn't some thinking of that with some of the church fathers, yeah. but uh, but that's where it really took off. And of course, it comes back to uh, a whole judicial punitive view of salvation and the yeah. cross. And, yeah. and of course, we're going to get more and more into that in another couple of months. Indeed. But um, yes, the uh, assumption. In fact, I think it's the New King James that even... Uh, capitalizes, but be afraid of the one, and they put capital O. Yeah. <laughs> Rascals. Uh, all right. But looking at the way uh, you and, and with the help of N.T. Wright today helped us in, interpret that the way Jesus intended, we presume, uh, how afraid do we need to be of Satan? This side of the cross, if if Jesus won victory over death, if he won victory over the principalities and powers, and I understand we're in the already and the not yet, but how should we be living life in fear of Satan? I I know people who do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and on the flip side, can we get too cavalier and go, ah, Satan's been defeated, I don't need to worry about that. Well, you've answered the question almost. <laughs> uh, because, you know, um, 
we the war the ultimate war outcome is assured mm. it is finished but we obviously uh, are still in battles yeah and uh, you know in any real war uh, you win some and you lose some so the answer is to be aware not to be afraid but be aware you know maybe suddenly i got a i got a call yesterday from someone that uh, up in canada and was asking me about a, a situation where just disunity had come into their team and what to do. And one of the things I did was I put it back to this, that, that our battle's not against flesh and blood. Mm-hmm. So it's time to pray, and it's time to walk in humility, and it's time to be transparent, And because God moves in light. He is light, right? Yeah. So there's an awareness, but not, oh, no, what if... Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, let me give an example. Yeah, because you remember, <clears throat> you will remember this. Uh, Twenty-seven years ago, we went and planted another church mm-hmm. in Vancouver. Yeah, and I was looking all over the place for uh, a facility. Yeah, because we were just little, just meeting in a home. But I mm-hmm. knew we would be growing, and uh, by the grace of God, we did. But. I felt one day as I was looking at these places that this place called South Hall or the Moti Raja. The Moti Raja. I was I supposed well. to go there. Yeah. And so we did. Mm-hmm. And it was well situated and it was there was lots of great stuff. And we grew and grew and grew. But from the beginning, I had people who I think were maybe overly afraid of the power of the evil one saying, mm-hmm. oh, God can't bless us here because, you know, there's Hindus and frankly, it was mainly Sikhs, but there's Hindus and Sikhs mm-hmm. here yeah. and he can't bless us and we're only two blocks away from the Sikh temple and how could we be here? And I would just smile and we just keep going. Mm-hmm. Well, um, here's the punchline. <laughs> I became very close friends with the owner. Yeah. Lovely Hindu man. And we would have tea and we would, a couple of times a week, I'd just go and have my lunch break with him. And then I got to start telling him more and more about Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I got to pray with him. And one day he said to me, I would love for you to experience India. I'd never even thought of India. And he said, I'll pay for it. Will you come with me? There's an offer you can't refuse. And I went (laughs) and you know, there's stories of healing broke out everywhere and really everywhere. Mm And uh, and I came home, and people in the Indian community were coming to me, and it opened a door to India that takes us right till today. Yeah. How many tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of lives? Yeah, I'm sure hundreds of thousands of lives uh, we have reached. Or I could have said, "Oh, you're right, boy. We can't be blessed here because you know <laughs> there, there's there're Hindus and there's, there's there's idols and there's stuff." Yeah. And look at how what God did. Yeah. Okay. Is that's that a good, that's is that great a good answer? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, you touched on this twice, actually. You kind of circled around to it again at the end, but I, I want to come back to it a little bit. Uh, you said early on in today's teaching, you said significance and success are not synonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, as if to say, like, we're not going to be successful in mission at all times. There are, there will be times of rejection. Um, 
but we are searching for significance as we're made to, to we're made for significance. for significance so how do we how do we discover our significance even when we're not finding success how do we how do we live in a place of understanding our our eternal significance um even when things are really not going the way we expected that's an amazing question that you know people ta- try to tackle all the time <sighs> my simple answer is hebrews 12:1 fix your eyes on jesus mm. the author and perfecter of your faith that we can get discouraged we can get distracted all those things happen but our eyes have got to be fixed on him who has given us the ultimately significant purpose. My significance is uh, uh, he loves me and I love him. Yeah. You know, I'm a son. But but out of that, he give, he has given me an amazingly significant thing to do. And sometimes I come back and go, wow, Lord, that just doesn't seem to be going. But in intimacy with him, it's it's okay. You're doing great. Yeah, you're doing great. I said that to somebody who's really having some challenges overseas. Just I think it was yesterday or the day before they phoned me, and and I basically said the same thing. You you need to understand how delighted God is with you, hmm. and you don't have to try harder, yeah. and you don't have to do better. Frankly, most people don't understand that God is never disappointed in you. Never, no matter what. (laughs) Good. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for teaching us uh, Matthew 10. Um, Guessing next week we'll jump into Matthew 11. Thought I might go there. (laughs) I'm getting good at this. I'm starting to see a pattern. Uh, You know, if you're doing one uh, one or two weeks on I hope I'm doing one week on All right. (laughs) We'll see. We'll see. We'll we'll see. Uh, folks, thank you so much for being with us this week. If you have not yet subscribed, uh, then be sure to do that. Uh, we're here every Thursday, 3 p.m. on YouTube Live, Facebook Live. Uh, on YouTube, you can subscribe. But if you say, oh, Timmy, I already subscribed, just wait. Did you do the little bell thing? Because after you subscribe, you got to hit the bell. That way you'll be notified to say we've gone live because you lead a busy life. You'll forget. Um if you like listening to just the audio, be sure to check out impactnations.com slash podcast, uh, Isaiah's catalog, the whole thing. Uh, but if you hit subscribe, it'll just get delivered right to your favorite podcast app as well. So uh, do join us every week. We love having you here. And, and as a bonus for Chapter 11, mm-hmm. it will be right after you and I have come back from Bulgaria. That's right. And so yeah. we can be sharing a few of our favorite Bulgarian stories. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely. We're going to go work with the Roma. Yeah. Who, who many of us call gypsies, but it's yeah. kind of a pejorative term. We're going to work with the Roma and with our partners in Bulgaria. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to telling you about it. All right. Uh, oh, and you know what? Just a little plug. Stay tuned on Facebook, too. If you don't already follow us on Facebook, be sure to follow us, subscribe, like. I don't even know what you do on Facebook. Anyway, check out our Facebook stuff because we are posting there regularly. And uh, while in Bulgaria, uh, I'll be probably taking some videos and stuff like that uh, and, and posting some interviews and all sorts of things. So uh, follow along. 
on Facebook. Yeah, because for one thing, we'll be showing them a video of my favorite ice cream place <laughs> in the entire world. <laughs> Happens to be in Plovdiv, Bulgaria. I'm very excited. You cannot beat that ice cream. Indeed. All right, so check out the ice cream on Facebook. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. Have a great week. God bless.